Welcome back to Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health. On this panel today, Don Foster from the Chaos Community, Gary White from Verizon, and Sophia Vargas from Google, and I am Matt German Prey from the University of Nebraska at Oma and also the Chaos Community. It's great to be here. So. Hoping the panelists today could tell us a little bit about themselves. Dawn, you want to lead us off? Absolutely. So I am the Director of Data Science for the Chaos Project. And I have 20 plus years of experience working in open source. I've worked at companies like Intel and VMware. I'm also currently on the board of Open UK. And I'm co-chair of the CNCF Contributor Strategy Technical Advisory Group. I have a deep passion for metrics and OSPOs and, and all things open source. Hi, everyone. I'm Sophia Vargas. I am a program manager in Google's open source programs office. I've been here for the last three and a half years. And my focus has been on research and analytics and support of open source projects and programs that we as Google engage with um, both inside and outside of our company. So working with chaos has been wonderful alignment and understanding how we understand and measure things like project health inside and outside of our organization. I'm Gary White. I am a principal engineer at Verizon working in the space of understanding viability in open source, understanding the risk of adopting open source and measuring that against what projects we use to guide decision making of when we use a particular dependency or when we use a different one. Excellent. Thank you, Don and Sophia and Gary. So today's topic is just about that, the viability of an open source project. So the first question that I'll present to all of you is, you know, why is it important to assess the viability of an open source project when selecting one to use, you know, within your organization? Kind of a follow on to that too, are, are there some cases where viability is more or less important to assess. I can start here. I proposed this like formalization of viability to chaos a couple of months ago because I was noticing that the only metrics that were being used at pretty much any company that I could find to assess what open source projects ought to be used came from things like static code analysis and whatever SAST is as an acronym. I can't remember off the top of my head. So we would see that it was mostly based in whether or not there were a lot of open vulnerabilities for a project or whether or not there was a lot of open licensing concerns for a particular project. And I think that intuitively many technologists understand that open source is more difficult to really wrap your head around than if it has a compatible license or has a critical security vulnerability. And that kind of ethereal, why do we care about this project? What makes it a useful project? What makes it a good project? Was very difficult to capture. And I think that formalizing it using tools provided by chaos and metrics models provided by chaos, then shaping those into something called viability was like, an attempt to codify that, that what is that feeling of, is this a useful project? Isn't this a useful project? Like, I think a lot of developers might call it a gut feeling or a sniff test. And that's just not something that flies well with like a leadership team. 
kind of start a different view on this. And maybe this is speaking to my background in consulting, but working for a consulting firm, the amount of rigor that we would go through to evaluate paid solutions for organizations, you don't shell out millions of dollars on data center infrastructure without evaluating your options and understanding the vendor. And I think using something like open source software that you can just go out and download, the barrier to adoption is so much lower. So it's almost like I see the importance of this is trying to create or I don't say replicate that level of rigor, but you have to have a large amount of consideration in adopting these types of tools because the barrier to entry is a lot lower. And so I think it isn't necessarily thought through as much and as it should be in many organizations because of that. And I think it's important to think about viability and the context of how you're using that project as well. Because how you look at the viability of some project that you're maybe just using as some, you know, little part of someone's individual developer environment, that's not going to be nearly as important to assess as, say, something that is going to be a core component of one of the products that you sell for customers or a core component of keeping your infrastructure running at your company. You know, those, the viability probably matters a little bit more to assess that viability in a more stringent way than for some projects that maybe just aren't as important from a, from a company standpoint. Yeah, I think this is a good time to bring up that there's also those like different pillars in a model that we might use, because I think, Don, what you just mentioned about where are you using it really matters. I think like what matters about the project is also important to consider because there's going to be this project doesn't make sense because there's basically no community around it. This project doesn't make sense because there's no strategy around it. I like this project a lot because they have strong governance or they have a strong compliance profile. And I think like breaking it into those pillars is really important subtext when we're thinking about what makes a viable product. It's it's not just like yes or no, it's viable. It's do these components work and then can you engage in a way if the community isn't what you want it to be? Do you invest in the project and do you try to form a community around it? Great. Thank you for that, everyone. So if we're trying to understand the viability of these projects, what happens in your context when a project fails or a project changes in such a way that it's no longer applicable inside of your organization? Speak a little bit about that. I think in the worst case, what happens with this is that all of a sudden you can no longer use that open source project for a variety of reasons. Maybe they changed the license to something that doesn't work with how you were using it. Maybe it's been deleted and is never going to be released again. That's happened to a couple of, a couple of open source projects over the years. And in a lot of cases, these involve a lot of scrambling for companies, right? So a license change is announced or the project disappears for some reason. And all of a sudden, you know, what do you do as a company to, you know, do you replace it? Do you fork it and try to do something else? It creates a lot of, I would say, drama with it and difficulty, uncertainty within a company. I would definitely plus one the the drama comment on that. I think we hadn't quite really gotten to this yet, but I feel like an element of understanding viability again in your own context is sort of the maintenance that you take on as part of that in terms of what you are doing to ensure you're understanding how you're using something, where you're using it, and who's accountable for it inside of your organization. Ideally, if all those things are in place in the event of a failure or the need to fork or replace, you already have the people you know you need to talk to and the systems you know you need to update 
and or change and or replace with things that often is a little bit more complex, especially because these things are generally moving targets or you might have multiple versions and you might have multiple teams that use things at various different points in time. So even with infrastructure, record keeping and a program around it, it ends up being a pretty hefty change management process that even if you've thought through it can still be a pretty burdensome exercise. And something like the point in time failure or license game can really highlight how that's going or how well you've positioned yourself across those elements, uh, whether or not you're prepared to go out and track down where all these things are being used and who you can actually work with to get those items mediated. Yeah, I really like framing it as drama because I feel like we, we always talk about these things as like open source risk and level of effort to mitigate. But the, the truth is that, that for me personally, as somebody who has I'm sure all of us have had to deal with open source projects that are suddenly, oh, it's end of life or, oh, I didn't know we were using that. Or like you get the depend bot vulnerability notification on a GitHub repo. It feels bad. I think it's bad for morale when a project fails. It can be terrible for infrastructure teams. It can take up a lot of time and it doesn't feel good. It, it makes people not happy when they are using an open source project and they had very little lead time to know that they need to switch off of it. I think something that happened recently was OpenSSL, a package that everybody uses for SSL on Linux, was supporting the 1.1.1 branch for a very long time because it came standard shipped with many like CentOS and, and extra, like I don't want to point any particular operating system out, but it comes shipped standard in many containers and many VM images. And I think September like 23rd or 20th or something, they just said, yeah, we're going to stop maintaining OpenSSL 1.1.1. You have to go two major versions ahead to get off of OpenSSL 1.1.1. And that's just like, you know, got to be really painful for a lot of infrastructure teams who weren't aware that that was coming, didn't have any leading indicators. And so I hope that's something that this can help achieve is like get some of those like notices ahead of time that, yeah, you know, this is coming. You need to be thinking about this now versus an open vulnerability shows up and the project fails or they just stop maintaining it and is a very slow failure that takes everybody like two years to even notice that they've stopped maintaining. Oh, I was going to make one more comment on that. I really love that comment, Gary, because I think this is something that I've been struggling with how to change this. But I feel like there is a bit of a challenge for project leaders to communicate things to their user constituents because of how these things are consumed. Like if they're being consumed through a third-party package manager, there is a disconnect between what's happening in the project and what's happening at the end user. And so unless you're looking on GitHub, you might not see these types of updates or issues created or items that have been listed on the roadmap that will and will not be supported. And so unless you are actively involved in that project and you're just, if you're not doing that, you're just consuming it from a package manager, how are you even going to know this is happening? And I, I think that often isn't really a factor. Like, <laughs> I don't know, I think that it kind of comes down into, maybe I'm jumping ahead of us a little, little bit in the next question, but one, the question is, how can the project leaders have more communication options, I guess? Or is it really, a, is it on the end users to listen better? 
I'm not really sure how to fix that, but it definitely feels like there is a bit of a gap in many cases. Yeah, I I really like the pointing out that project leaders sometimes know about these things and they have a hard time getting developers motivated. And I think just as common as the other way around that there's this intuitive feeling of, oh, we can't use this project, but you don't have numbers and metrics to back it up. So that communication can get lost between leadership and implementation and implementation and leadership. And I also have an impression that when people choose an open source project, it is it is usually through force of inertia or momentum. Like, oh, what are we going to use for a front end framework? React, Gatsby, you know, name something that you've used before or like Hugo, I don't know. But it's very rare that you see like an apples to apples comparison of like, here's the licensing and here's the community and here's the strategy and here's the governance. And I think partially the reason is that a lot of that data isn't easy to access. It's not simple to gather. So hopefully if, if it's simple to gather, more people will use it. And I think the other thing that we, we should keep in mind is that, you know, assessing the viability of an open source project isn't really, it's something that we tend to do maybe once in a lot of cases, but it's not really a, a one and done thing. You know, a lot of the examples okay. that I talked about earlier with, you know, like license changes and things, those often come as a surprise. Maybe we can anticipate some of those if we do proper assessments, but we, we really should be thinking of assessments as something that's, that's ongoing over time and not just so, you know, do it once and then pick a project and then, you know, wash your hands and I'm done with it. If only we knew like a data science director at some, you know, really cared about this kind of thing, the <laughs> metrics, you know, we should get them here. <laughs> Love it. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> Well, then we can turn this over to the director of data science, the chaos project. The next question to lead us off. So we talk about assessment. How, how do we assess if a project and let's let's take the positive angle here. How do we assess if a project is good or if this project is viable? What in the world should we be looking at? Yeah, the the assessments that I've done historically have tended to be for projects that we were thinking about incorporating in a very significant way into a product. So these were assessments that were honestly a little bit more more manual. And so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about those and then maybe we can transition into some of the stuff that, that Gary is looking at and automating. But the first thing I looked at was, is it under an OSI license? Because there are a lot of quote unquote open licenses nowadays that are actually not open source licenses. And in a lot of, a lot of cases, the developers don't actually know the difference. So we would get projects that people wanted us to assess weren't actually open source at all, but were under some other varying degrees of open licenses. And one of the other things I looked at was, was adoption. So the project that we were thinking about, you know, building as a kind of a key part into a product, is it adopted by other people? Are there other things that depend on it? Or is it adopted by, by basically no one, in which case nobody but us would care if it went away, which is not a good position to be in. I also looked a lot at ownership. So who, who owns this project? Is it owned by a company? Is that company a venture funded startup? Is that company a competitor? Is it owned by a foundation? All of these things, you know, kind of tied into governance help you understand whether it's a company or a foundation that maybe you trust more than others, whether they keep up with PRs and issues. If there's a gigantic backlog and they don't have enough people to keep up, that's a bit of a red flag. Security policies. You know, how do they address security vulnerabilities, including a 
I would also run the OSS app scorecard to see how good of a job they did at keeping up with security vulnerabilities. And then things like, do they have a code of conduct? Do they have a contributing guide? And so there were a lot of things that I looked at was, it was in a bit more of an ad hoc way. And we hadn't, at that particular company, we hadn't really formalized it into, into something that was a little more, more automated, which would be kind of the ideal. And maybe that's where I transition over to Gary because he's working on some metrics models that actually do some of that. Yeah, I'll, um, I posed this question because I wanted to like get an understanding of how people thought about collecting this data or assessing these things outside of the model. I do also want to talk about the model, but I'm interested in thoughts and feedback about what is going on today when nobody's looking at viability and people are sparingly looking at uh, software bills of material. I cover really extensively in the metrics models themselves and in the blog post like 30 metrics that we're using, some of them repeats across the entire model, across those four categories that I think I mentioned before, strategy, community, governance, and compliance and security. I won't read them all here because I think that that would be like a three-hour podcast as opposed to the not three hours that we want to do. But I think that I want to answer this question by saying like, I would really like to assess projects with this model and with the model of 30 metrics that are broken down into four categories so that you can get a reasonable understanding of against a baseline project that we do use and that we do like functionally think is strategically necessary. How does this fare? Is this like better? Is this worse? Do we think that this is important enough that we should let go of the risk that we're taking in? I would like to be able to do assessments that way. And I think that that's absolutely feasible with this model, even if I think we're missing three metrics out of it, but those can be added later. And what I think people do nowadays is like what I had mentioned before, where you're pulling up a web page maybe, and you're saying, oh yeah, you know, I need something that does LDAP and Python. And you're completely missing that maybe the LDAP library has a license that you may not want to use. It might have open vulnerabilities. It might have whatever. But because a search brought you to what you wanted to see and it, it solved your problem, Many engineers, myself included, are guilty of, yeah, I'll use that. It'll be fine. Not really thinking about strategically, what is the governance of this project? What's the community? Is this a strategic project that I'm going to be using for a long time? Or is this a script that I'm writing to use and then I'm not going to use it again? I think it's important that we change that. But I do think that right now it's disturbingly common that a lot of people don't put a lot of thought into what I should be using and what I shouldn't be using. Yeah. And I think that happens, that happens sort of organically, right? I mean, it's often individual engineers or individual product managers working on a product and they're like, Hey, I need a thing that does this. And they just kind of pull it in. And that's really easy to do with, with open source software without really taking a critical look at whether that's the right thing to do. Definitely. Critical look, I think being something that Matt has just posed as a question of like finding a baseline project, because I had mentioned like that maybe there's this litmus test that you use against a project that you know you must use. I think that that's like maybe a separate conversation. I don't want to get too far from the question because I think like there's a lot of different ways you could choose which project should be your baseline. And I don't want to break the train of thought here. I think I want to bring it back to sort of your first comment, Don, maybe a couple of minutes ago or 10 minutes ago or whenever it was. But in terms of just how we're consuming it and 
what it actually is doing inside of your organization. It's going to change a lot of the sort of strategic conversation of whether or not a project is going to be appropriate for your case. And I think at large organization like where I work, I think within our open source programs office, a lot of our approach has just been to set sort of baseline policies that will deal with the security compliance and licensing components. But after that, there's a little bit more flexibility of how individual teams want to choose what they're using. And I think we do get brought in as more of a, a, a strategy and consulting nature. I think a lot of it has to do, at least when I look at it, it's what is the relationship that we want to have with this project and with this community as well? Are we okay to just be an end user or consumer of this particular package? Or if we're putting a lot of investment in and around this project, this is something that we want to be more involved in. Do we want to be more engaged with it? Because we can't just rely on it continuing to be available. We might want to support it directly with our engineers versus just say taking it how it is. And if it goes in a different direction or if it goes away, it's okay because that's we've, we've made that conscious decision up front. So I think there's definitely some consideration of how you want to engage with this project, with this community, if it's really important to you. And so part of that is can we engage with it? I think it depends on how the project is governed, how it's set up and who's, who's already working in it. And what does it actually mean to become an active member of this community? Do we have that time? Do we have that connection? Do we have that network to be able to walk in and become a part of the project? And I think that those conversations can be very variable depending on who you're talking to. But it's definitely something that I've been a little bit more encouraging of to some teams that are really interested in going all in on a project. And it's really whether or not you're willing to step up and become a part of it. Well, I think that leads perfectly here to the the last question. You know, what are ways that you monitor and mitigate those risks of using a project that might not be ideal from a viability perspective, but there's a lot of people that want to use the project. And so how do you, how do you work through that? Yeah. And I think a part of that is like viability is not binary, right? Every project is going to have strengths that make it more or less vulnerable. And it's kind of a discussion about what risks you want to accept as a company. But a lot of those risks can be mitigated if you contribute to that open source project. So like, you know, Sophia was mentioning earlier that you don't always know what big changes are coming up within a project. But if you actually have people who are contributing and ideally people who are in leadership positions in those projects, you can know what those big changes are. So one of the ways you can mitigate this is by actually becoming an engaged and, you know, active member of those communities for the projects that that you really rely on. Yeah, I think I'm going to steal the term that you used earlier, Don, and say that you, you may want to develop against drama. Right. Like if, if there's something about the project that you think needs to be less of a risk or less dramatic, that's usually well within the rights of a company or an individual to do. And I think that kind of handles a lot of the community angle. If there needs to be a little more oomph behind the project, there needs to be a little bit more contribution. That's usually something that invested teams who use a particular tool for a core part of their tool chain should consider. There's also many. In my experience, many creators of open source and developers of open source prefer to get feedback about things they can do better. It happens sometimes, but very seldom do I find that folks will not at least engage in a conversation about, hey, do you want to take the project in this direction? Is this a feature that you can use? 
And they'll either say, yeah, sure, that sounds great. Or no, I don't want to do that because this and this and this and this. So engaging with the community is one of the best ways to mitigate any issues that you might have with an open source project, because at least that starts a dialogue that leads you in a better direction, whether that be a different project or the same project with a little more investment from your organization. Maybe our gloss over the metrics part, but I think there's also a role of metrics and monitoring here. And I think it, the unfortunate caveat is I, I think I quoted this, I wrote it down in the notes. I think Don said, is this information simple to gather? And that's not always the case. So we can monitor what we can in terms of what's important to your organization and you as risk or viability and trying to monitor against that. But I think there's also a lot of opportunity to fill in the gaps and that a lot of this information isn't easy to track, especially if it's more related to what's happening inside the conversations around the project direction or inside the usage concept of your organization that are only visible if you are there and present. So it kind of, again, reiterates that comment that I think everyone agrees on that this is really important to you, get more involved. But on the other hand, if you're thinking about risk mitigation inside your organization, better understanding who, what, where inside what you're using, where you're using it, and who you can actually turn to in an organization. I've made this comment in a few different spaces, but inside the open source programs office, I think sometimes we find ourselves in the position of nobody knows who's accountable for this thing. And now it's you because you're the open source team. And from another perspective of risk mitigation, this can be, again, drama, (laughs) for lack of a better term. And so I think the more that you can be proactive on creating a system of record around these things, that again is a lot to maintain and to manage and to update. But when they're is something that is at risk, you have someone that you can at least reach out to or guide in another direction proactively if you have enough information in front of you. Yeah, and I think the monitoring piece of this is is really something that we should maybe think more about because I, I haven't seen a lot of viability monitoring that's kind of an ongoing thing that, I don't know, maybe you get some alert if, they're, if the open SSF score goes way down or if something else, you know, happens within the project that you are concerned about. So I, I don't know that I haven't seen anybody do that in a really sophisticated way. And so I would love to see examples of, of some of that if other people have, have done that. Yeah. Sophia, thank you for putting us back on track with the monitoring because the mitigating feels like, yeah, that's great. But the monitoring is just as important that there's this operationalization that you want to achieve as somebody who thinks about open source a lot. And I think that it's kind of peeling back a curtain when I look at open source projects and then I look at the dependencies of those projects. And I think one of the most potent metrics that I've used is lib years, where you aggregate how far behind all of the dependencies are for a project. And that number gets very, very large the more dependencies that there are because they're just so many years behind. And I think that if folks had that number in front of them and watched it tick up, then it would be easier to justify this like very vague, big ball of technical debt and say, well, you know, we're getting this many years behind because we have 55 dependencies. And so it makes sense to invest and just use the latest patch version of these dependencies so that when we do have to do the major changes, when we do have the big dramatic vulnerability find, then it's not so painful to implement the new version. 
it seems like something that should be relatively intuitive given the maturity of so many software scanning tools and suggestions within those software scanning tools and things like renovate PRs that go automatically or depend about PRs that go automatically is not the most difficult thing in the world to make recommendations about this dependency maybe shouldn't be used. Why don't you use this one? Why don't you patch this version? Blah, blah, blah. Here's the reasoning. It has poor community health. It has poor governance health, so on and so forth. Yeah, I was going to add to that because I think one, one thing that we've been challenged with in our own organization is just the, the sheer scale of this. In that if you're talking about a handful of projects, you can be a lot more deliberate and look into all the various details, options, and permutations available to you. I think what gets challenging is when you're talking about this in the realm of thousands and tens of thousands of things that you're consuming and are monitoring. I think for for us, I think we've sort of had to take it up from both sides. So incredibly comprehensive scanning and monitoring to for things that are very strategic or important, having a lot more visibility into. And so putting a lot more effort into looking into various levels of monitoring metrics and analysis on an ongoing basis to understand what's happening and when and how we can address anything. It's been challenging to do anything in the middle for a large scale of things, just because the, at a certain point, it just becomes untenable to have that level of detailed tracking across that massive portfolio. So I think it's definitely worth considering your own scale of operations and how you minimize risk in your organization at both the comprehensive level, as well as if you do need to have more of a fine-grained approach to any, any individual thing, do you, do you have the space to do that? So I've known you all for a while now, and every time I hear you all talk, I learn something new. Every time. So thank you for that. I think we're going to move now to our value adds, something that has brought each of our panelists value or joy or meaning to your life recently. And I'll just start because I have the mic here, but it's the time of year for me where the mornings are cool and I wake up to a starry sky, which I love. And then I get to go running in the dark, which I also love (laughs) under moonlight and starlight. So That's my current value add. I can do mine. I was at the Open Source Summit in Bilbao last week and getting to see people in person, including I got to meet several people that I've worked with a lot from the Chaos Asia group who live in China that I had never been able to meet before. So it it was just really fantastic to see these people and it brought me a lot of joy to get to hang out with them and We also ate some delicious pinchos and Spanish wine, which was great. I have a non-open source related value and highlight for me. A couple of months ago, I joined an orchestra. It's been about five years since I've played with any organized group. And I forgot how much I missed it. So that's been a lot of fun to kind of dust off the instrument and try to learn how to play music again with a group. I don't know. I feel like many of us lost a lot of our hobbies in our forced shutdown and work from home era. And so it's been really nice to go out and and find opportunities to rekindle those. Well, following that, I feel like saying I love pumpkin spice lattes and it's fall. I'm like so much less meaningful. But 
brings a lot of meaning to my life to just have pumpkin spice back in my life. I know we're not on video in the recording, but I'm wearing a beanie with a pumpkin on it. Also, I went to write bot to do something silly on Discord the other day. And being somebody who really likes JavaScript, it brought me a lot of joy to see like the Rust one is point point twelve and the Go one is like point point seventeen and everything else is like not even version one and then JavaScript is like version twelve and a half. So I was like, yeah, awesome. Everybody, thank you for your time today on this chaos cast. And thanks for all the listeners joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community. Thank you.